Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham. Hey there, Jim. Hey, John. How are you? I'm good. I'm I'm bubbly with excitement. This is episode 312. It's the end of season three. Who would have thought? Where did the time go? I we we what a year it's been. We had 14 terrific guests and a dozen Eli Mark short stories, including the one we're going to listen to today. Yes, the titular story. The what? The titular story. I'm uncomfortable with that word. You seem confident about that word, though. More confident, really, than I think you should be. I think I'm saying it right. It's the the title story, the titular story from the eighth book in the Eli Mark series. I'm sorry, the uh, award winning eighth book uh, called. Uh, they're both called the self working trick. I would have uh, happily uh, said award-winning because uh, I, I, you don't have to do that. I'm I'm happy to say award-winning. I'm still hung up on titular, though. And I think if it's is there a chance that we could get Teller on the line quick and ask him to uh, weigh in on titular, uh, just in case. Uh, Who's got Teller on speed dial? Uh, Michael Callahan is the only <laughs> one I know who does. Uh, well, uh, moving on anyway, uh, this is a great, I, I really enjoyed listening back to all of our guests talk about the concept of a self-working magic trick. Yeah. It was your idea. I'm going to give you credit. Was it? Uh, it was at the, toward the end of season two, you said we should do something where we ask everybody the same question and, and do a roundup at the end of the year. That was your idea. Well, uh, score one for me. I am uh, not the titular host of this program, but I, I'm just happy to be here. It was a great idea, Jim, and you well, should take you. full credit for it. Well, every once in a while, a uh, a squirrel finds a, a blind a club, broken club, whatever. I uh, Yes, I'm happy to say I, I had some small. Are you trying to broken, tell me that a broken, broken squirrel, squirrel is correct twice a day? A broken squirrel can find his nuts twice a day, I think is what I'm trying to say. So the question we asked was, how exactly do you define a self-working trick? And they all weighed in on it. And it I, I found it fascinating to listen back. So our first observation comes from our medical examiner, magician friend, Dr. Reed Quinton, who offers up a, I think, pretty solid definition of exactly what is a self-working trick. How do you define the term a self-working trick? Oh, boy, it's funny because so many of them claim to be self-working, but then there's math and other things involved behind the scenes. So I guess I would define it as something that is either done with a simple gaffe or, you know, with some simple uh, mathematics or something like that, you know, that, that you could pretty much if you gave the secret to anyone, they could kind of go, oh, got it. And then after a few minutes of practice, at least get from beginning to end. Yep. Like I say, I think that's a great definition. Thank you, Dr. Quentin. Yes. So glad he came on this year. That was so much fun. Yeah. All of it's been fascinating, but to have the sidelight of a medical examiner talk to us, I thought that was just terrific. Yeah, I, I took him to my sisters in crime meeting this year, and oh. I was the toast of the town because he's a you really were. good presenter, and he had some great stories. Just a fascinating, fascinating job. Anyway, speaking of fascinating, remember back when we had Ken Weber on the podcast, and he was the only person we've ever had on who invited his own guest along yes. to join him. 
I do remember that. Uh, he had, if I remember correctly, just had lunch or breakfast uh, with business speaker and magician Shep Hyken, and they both offered up their thoughts on exactly what is a self-working trick. First up was Shep. A self-working trick means it doesn't take any skill whatsoever to make the trick happen. It's it's a card trick that uses mathematics to do it. It's a trick that doesn't use side of hand. So basically, you get to learn how to do the trick without having to take years to practice and then spend the time practicing on the presentation to make that self-working trick a miracle. And yeah. that's what great magicians do. Yeah. And of course, there is no such thing as a self-working trick. Except if it's in a automaton, you, know, you press a button and the, the guy with the mechanics does the trick. That's the only true self-working trick. Everything else, whether it is a mathematical trick or a me mechanical trick, requires, it's not optional. A tenyo $8 trick or a $15 trick, whatever they cost, still requires some sort of explanation of what this what is happening and why it's worth 60 seconds or three minutes of your time. Well, it's hard to argue with that. In, in fact, it's been my experience that it's hard to argue with Ken Weber, or to put it more succinctly, it's hard to win an argument with Ken Weber. That's true enough. But we asked the same question of our good friend, Mac King, and we got a slightly different take on the issue. I don't know. I mean, it's sort of trite to say, you know, no tricks are self-working. I mean, I've heard a lot of bright people say that, you know, that, that that's a misnomer, that there's no so such thing as a self-working magic trick because every magic trick, you know, takes practice and uh, attention, et, et cetera. But that said, I think as a kid, I learned a lot of tricks that just by going through the motions, magic happens. Yeah. And uh, that's a pretty empowering thing. And it's, I think it's really enticing uh, as a kid anyway, to be able to do something that really doesn't take much physical dexterity or skill. And, and I think it's a, you know, it's like a gateway drug into magic. You know, maybe you're not doing magic, but you are fooling people and, you know, you get some people get a big kick out of that. And so I, I think I, it's what got me sort of interested in you, magic. Uh, so that's the positive spin on self-working tricks, because if anybody is going to find a positive spin on just about, well, anything, it's going to be Matt King. I, I just love Matt King. Thank you for introducing me to him back in Vegas back in the day. I mm -hmm. uh, It was on your recommendation that I went. And everybody, if you have a chance, Go see Mac King live. And, and the great thing about him, and I think we, you know, uh, in his interview, I, I mentioned this. You can bring anybody. You can bring a five-year-old. You could bring your grandmother. You could bring the Pope. There's nothing off-color or offensive, but you are going to laugh your guts out from the first minute he takes the stage until the curtain call. It's so funny and so wonderful and so accessible that you don't have to worry about, you know, sometimes in Vegas, you got to worry about who yeah. you bring to what show. Not in this case. It's just tremendous. And if I can just piggyback on that, if you are, in fact, bringing the Pope to see Matt King's show, get in touch with us. We want to talk to you because you sound Absolutely. like a fascinating person. <laughs> 
Anyway, that was Mac's point of view. I think a lot of magicians probably agree with our friend Kayla Drescher that the problem with self-working tricks is that they can be, well, kind of boring. The, the issue I think that happens a lot with self-working tricks is that they're very procedural. So there are a lot of steps that lead you to the magic, but to get there is often very very boring. And so I think self-working tricks are often looked down upon because there's no like flair or um, any entertainment value uh, put into the process. But I think tr self-working tricks could easily be made entertaining if they're in the hands of the right person. Um, I think just inherently because they're so they're so long or there's a lot of counting, a lot of dealing onto a table, you know, eight piles, like what, you know, that kind of thing that I think they, we tend to kind of laugh at them. Um, but I've never actually seen a self-working trick done with that kind of entertainment. So I, that'd be cool to see that. I never even thought about it. Someone who has thought about that is the one and only David Williamson. How much fun was he last episode? Uh, he is absolutely one of my favorites to talk to. He's so knowledgeable. He's so funny. He's so personable. It's just, it, what a delight. If for some reason you didn't listen to the last episode, go back and listen, because I just feel so fortunate to, we've had him on here twice. We hope to have him on again. Anyway, his point of view on self-working tricks is that sometimes a self-working trick is actually harder to perform than a regular magic trick. I think self-working tricks require more work sometimes mm. because when you have a trick that requires uh, work, like sleight of hand or uh, some mechanical assistance or some secret maneuvers, you have to create a presentation to disguise that, right? Um, so it forces you, uh, and it comes with, you know, usually those tricks come with a presentation, kind of whoever created the trick has a little narrative or story built around it. And you, you sometimes you over-present this to misdirect that thing you're doing right right self-working trick doesn't come with that so you have to write your own you have to make it bigger than it is i think it's almost harder sometimes to present a self-working trick i mean in a way it's easier mechanically because you don't have to do any secret moves or palm cards or anything like that or whatever the trick is but i think you have to work harder on the other end on the presentation end to make it interesting to make it seem magical because sometimes the self-working tricks, the method is closer to the bone. Mm. You know, uh, you're not providing good misdirection or you're not. It's kind of it might be it might be more apparent. So you have to misdirect with your words, your stories. You have to misdirect their mind. That's the most interesting thing I've heard to date about <laughs> the self-working trick is that it it's not self-working. In fact, it takes more work to do a self-working trick that's magic. To do it well. To do it yeah. well. Yeah, to make yeah. it look like a magic uh, trick yeah. or, or, you know, uh, something astounding. I don't think it matters the method. If it's self-working or it takes a lot of work, that's yeah. kind of beside the point, right? You know, yeah. it's like saying a hammer. I use a hammer to build a house or I have this pneumatic in 2023, these pneumatic, do, 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 I could do a whole roof. If you, if, you, if you build an ugly house, it doesn't matter which tool you use. You know what I mean? As always... David Williamson makes a great point. Ugly house or ugly trick, it really only matters what the audience sees, which was exactly what our friend Bill Arnold pointed out. If you if you have a, a presentation that you that are that is entertaining, 
the audience doesn't know if you've done 15 slides or if you've just done a self-working trick. They don't, they don't, they don't know the difference. I, I remember showing Terry LeGerald a, a routine that had about six slides, maybe three were pretty complicated. And I showed it to him and he said, do you mind if I rework this? And I said, of course. Um, and, he, and the next day he said, I got this whole trick down to one pinky break. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's the way he does it. Yeah. But you're, you take something very complicated and make it more simple, more direct, more entertaining. And the audience, they love it. And they won't know or care if it's self-working as long as you make it a strong performance and get them, stop thinking about the puzzle of it and make it magical for people. It, it doesn't matter to an audience. It, 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 they could care less about methods as long as there's magic. And that very point was made by our friend from Paris, Alexandra Duvivier. And even if it's, even if it's self-working, I need to make you to have sparkling in your eyes. I need you to dream. I need you to, to be taken somewhere else, even with a self-working trick. You know, I think that self-working tricks are great for beginners. To um, It's a step to give them more, uh, let's say, passion to go a step further and a step further. But... Uh, Self-working trick can be a miracle, but a self-working trick is a miracle by itself, but you still need to make it magical. And the words are self-working tricks. It's not a miracle. No, you need to sell it as a miracle. Ah, okay. It's yep. a self-working trick. Okay. But we don't care about that. You still need to put your stamp, your personality to sell and to make it look like a miracle. Yeah, that is the secret, isn't it? Make yeah. it look like a miracle. Yeah. Now, do you remember a couple minutes ago when David Williamson said it's sometimes harder to perform a self-working trick? I do indeed. Well, he and some friends took that as a challenge a few years back. I'll let him tell us about it. We used to have an experiment um, when I was working the Magic Castle when I was young and my friends were working. We'd work the close-up room. We would go to Hollywood Magic, and the idea was that I'm going to pick out your closer, and you get to pick out my closer. So I would pick up the little, um, uh, the pecan, or one of the easiest, the ball and vase, or the little uh, ring on a spring that's easy to take off. Some that's easiest, dumbest little trick, the little red snapper where you pull, you try to hook the rubber band and you squeeze the top and it snaps. Some little dime trick. And we go, that's your closer today. Even though they normally close with this wonderful cups and bowls routine or rollover aces or some <laughs> different thing. No, today you're closing with this. And we'd stand at the back of the room and watch each other. It was an experiment. It was a gag. But it was also, it was a great exercise in you know presenting this and all. Often it got the best reaction because we overpresented these things. Everything I've done up to this point is well and good. But ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to share with you something that has profound impact on my life. You know, when I was young uh, and I, you know, in, in the orphanage, you know, we make up these stories, you know, I mean, a family selected me, but it didn't work out. But, but the man next door had a hidden trap door, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And in his basement, I saw and a light shone through the window and it, on this little piece of brass. And I took it and you won't believe, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And we just overpresent these things just to make our friends laugh. But it was a real lesson. 
it was a real lesson. We walk through, we sleepwalk through the stuff we've been doing in all our lives. And then we overpresent this new piece of thing to try to make our friends laugh. And that's what got the reaction from the audience because we're throwing energy at it and working hard. So it's not self-working. You've got to work to make a self-working trick work. <laughs> Words to live by. You got to work to make a self-working trick work. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting that someone uh, as seasoned as David Williamson doesn't necessarily dismiss self-working tricks out of hand. He likes them. He just feels like you have to put in the, the extra work to make them magical. Yeah, and he is not the only one. I asked Mac King if he has a favorite self-working trick. You have a favorite of self-working card tricks, uh, self-working tricks. I, I mean, depends on what you mean. I mean, as a kid, I kind of think like the ball and vase is sort of like a self-working trick, right? Mm -hmm. You just do the right thing and a ball disappears and comes back and there's almost nothing to it, but it's a, it's a satisfying, uh, I put that in a, a magic set with a monkey <laughs> and you lift off the top of his head and take out his brain and put the put the head back and you put the brain in your pocket and then you lift off the top of his head and the brain is back inside the <laughs> and and there yeah. there you are evolving something and making yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> okay let's wrap this up with one more point of view on this topic and that would be from none other than the remarkable jade she is a really interesting point of view on self-working tricks and what to do with the people who flat out insist on performing them for her. Is there a, a card trick that lay people insist on doing for you once they know uh, you're a magician? 21 card trick. Yeah. Dum -de dum dum. And what do you do when that happens? I watch it and I say, nicely done. And then, uh, yeah, I take the decks back and I do something else or moving on because, you know, you got to give them, they, they really wanted that few moments of limelight on them and I give it to them. That's a smart performer thing right there. <laughs> that, that really is. I mean, it, it, the, the other option, of course, and I have explored this option numerous times is to fight back. Uh, and not want to give up the limelight that I have been paid to uh, create and or am in the middle of uh, when somebody wants to do that. And uh, I'm telling you, the idea <laughs> of letting them be successful is a much better philosophy than uh, strapping on the boxing gloves and going to, <laughs> and, and, you know, using using some sort of uh, verbal gymnastics to put them in their place. Uh, this is a better idea. It's uh, it's uh, and uh, one borne out by years, I'm certain, of uh, experience that you have uh, that led you to this. But I think it's right on the money. And also, it's my personality to be just more compassionate. To know what this person needs right now is that person needs a little attention, and I'll give it to him. And at a party, if that person is having a great time and he got the minute of limelight or two minutes of limelight, I'll give it to him because he's having a great time or she's having a great time and didn't cost me anything. And everybody else thought, oh, you're so clever, Bob, whatever. And and now he's a star. And that's really my job as a close-up worker. I'm there to make everybody a star. 
that they feel good about who they are and what they've done and what they're able to do. That's me. Here ended the lesson. You're there for Bob. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I think we're all there for Bob, aren't we? I I know I am now, but it it, it took me a long time to get to where Jade is as a performer. And it's she's so much smarter. And I don't mind saying that, but that's the route that I think all performers should take. And I think uh, we have not yet mentioned Eugene Berger in this episode, but Eugene was a big fan of making uh, people the star of his show and pointing the spotlight on them. And it's a really, really good thing to do as a performer. Yeah, it's it makes so much sense. Yeah, it really does. So uh, all this talk about self-working tricks has got me revved up to read the story, John. Well, then let's do exactly that. Here's the final story from the award-winning eighth book in the Eli Mark series, The Self-Working Trick. The Self-Working Trick. One, I had jokingly referred to our date as Megan and Eli's dinner and a murder. It wasn't until the end of the second act of the play that I realized just how far-sighted my alleged quip had been. However, at the moment, I was waiting in giddy anticipation for the big scare I knew was just seconds away. The play was that old classic, Wait Until Dark, performed at a local community theater. Because I had provided some nominal magic training to one of the actors in the production, I'd been invited to an early preview to check the quality of my instruction. Having enjoyed that experience, And being in possession of two free tickets for this opening night performance, I had suggested the evening as a fun night out, pretty sure that Megan would enjoy the play and, ultimately, the jump scare it offered. Dinner had been at an Indian restaurant just down the street, and although the food was fantastic, the service had been a bit slower than anticipated. Consequently, there was something of a mad rush toward the end of the meal to settle up accounts. This was followed by a quick jog down the street to the theater, which was housed in what clearly had been a church at some point in its history. The sign in front of the building, which in the past had no doubt listed service times, now announced the name of the current play, along with the date for an upcoming fundraising gala. We stepped into the building just as the lobby lights were flickering. We were hustled into the auditorium by an agitated usher who directed us to a fine pair of seats about three rows from the back and dead center. After apologizing our way down the cramped row, we finally sank into our seats and settled back, each a little out of breath just as the house lights dimmed. The first act was much like I had seen at the preview earlier in the week, although I sensed the cast had turned up the energy on their performances. This was likely due to the presence of an actual audience. I'm intimately familiar with that special shot of adrenaline you get as you're about to step on stage, regardless of whether it's an opening night or, in my case, performing my same old magic act for another new audience. Intermission was spent grabbing a couple of drinks after a quick trip to the men's room and then cooling my heels while Megan stood in line waiting for her turn in the ladies' room. I stood patiently in a corner, feeling the two plastic cups of wine in my hands begin to perspire with condensation. Chatter around me centered on reactions to the show, 
which sounded generally positive. Much adulation was being heaped on the lead actress, particularly praising her believable portrayal of blindness. The actor playing the primary villain was also favorably reviewed, although no mention was made of his character's nervous manipulation of a coin back and forth across his knuckles. This, it should be noted, had been my sole contribution to the production. The actor, a charming young fellow named Alex, had wandered into the magic store three weeks earlier inquiring as to whether or not we offered magic lessons. I confessed that both my Uncle Harry and I occasionally took on students, but that we didn't offer anything resembling an official, or for that matter, structured curriculum. That seemed fine with Alex, as he was only looking for instruction on how to roll a silver half-dollar across the backs of his knuckles. In the magic world, this is a showy and really pointless piece of magic manipulation. So, of course, I had spent literally hundreds of hours practicing it. After some questioning, I learned that Alex felt the move would make for a memorable, nervous tick for his character. In lieu of payment, he offered a couple of tickets to the show. I accepted the proposal, and it being a typically quiet afternoon in the shop, the lesson commenced immediately. Alex was a quick study, and he picked up the basics of the handling with surprising speed. He appeared again about a week later, to demonstrate his progress on the move and to inquire about a coin routine he had seen online. After some questioning on the specifics of what he had witnessed, I deduced he was referring to Matrix. This was a coin and card trick developed by fellow Minnesotan Al Schneider, although Uncle Harry would be quick to point out that it was derived from Yanko's sympathetic coins routine. This was likely due to Harry's insistence on proper crediting on all magic tricks, but also, I think, he was a little peeved that Al Schneider had come up with this classic routine and he hadn't. I explained a routine like Matrix would require actual formal lessons as it involved learning a number of specific moves and techniques. I offered my hourly rate, immediately discounted it, and moments later, I had a new magic student. We'd had two lessons since that time, and during these two 90-minute sessions, I learned more about Alex and about the play. Although not a professional actor, Alex appeared frequently at the theater, the Como Lake Players, as well as at other local community theaters. He was part of what was probably the largest segment of the theater community, non-professionals who didn't get paid but performed simply for the love of it. The magic community has a similar class of performers, who don't make their living at the art, but are passionately devoted to the craft. Reflecting on the laughable income I made as a quote-unquote professional magician, I recognized that most days I was mere inches away from being correctly referred to as a hobbyist. A casual inquiry from me about how rehearsals for the play were going unleashed an unexpected monologue from Alex. Apparently, it was turning out to be a more-than-usually troubled production. The play's director was indecisive to the point of distraction, constantly changing blocking and driving the costumer and set designer crazy with seemingly endless revisions. To compound that, the other key male role in the show had been cast by an actor who Alex referred to as his nemesis. You must have the same thing in your business, Alex suggested. 
We were seated in the back of the magic shop, going over his progress on Matrix. The table in front of us littered with cards and coins. You know, someone who always seems to get the better gig again and again. I nodded along, recognizing immediately that I did, in fact, have a nemesis in the magic community. Simon Hartwell. For years, Simon had nearly always seemed to get the bigger and better gigs, leaving me, in my mind, to paw through the dregs. In reality, of course, he wasn't really doing all that much better. Simon was simply more adept at announcing his engagements on Facebook and Instagram, each post making me feel my career was quickly disappearing into a murky bog. And then this week, a new bombshell, Alex continued. Our lead actress suddenly quit. Conflicts with your indecisive director, I suggested. Nope, the traitor went over to the dark side, Alex explained. She got a last-minute paying gig at the Guthrie. Wow, how do you go about fixing that? Doesn't the play open in about ten days? Alex nodded. Normally, it would be an unmitigated disaster, he said. However, as luck would have it, the theater's executive director played the same role three years ago in Summerstock, so after considerable coaxing, Leah's agreed to step into the part. Lucky for the play, but that's got to be a headache for her. She had to do the same thing once before, right after she joined the theater, he said. She swore she'd never do it again. Never say never, I offered. Hey. That's exactly what I said to her, Alex said with a grin, before returning his attention to the four coins on the table in front of him. This theater is in desperate need of extra restrooms. I looked up to see that Megan had joined me. I handed her the remaining full plastic cup of wine. Mine had long been emptied. I don't know. I was in and out of the men's room in no time at all. The kick she directed at my ankle may have been playful, but it was also sharp and effective. Yes, I continued, you are absolutely correct. It's a terrible injustice. Before I could dig myself out of this hole any further, the lobby lights flashed, signaling the intermission was drawing to a close. Megan quickly consumed the contents of her cup. I deposited it, along with my empty, in the recycling bin as we joined the throng, slowly wending its way back into the auditorium. I spent the whole of the second act in anticipation of the jump scare I had received at the preview earlier in the week. It's a classic moment I remembered from the movie version of Wait Until Dark, but I had forgotten about it while watching the preview. The director, for all of his or her faults, had staged it beautifully. The set was pitch black, lit only by light coming from an open refrigerator. The blind heroine, who has, apparently, killed the villain, is making her way clumsily toward the apartment's front door. Then, suddenly, out of the blackness, a figure lunges at her. This surprise, the sudden and homicidal appearance of the not-as-dead-as-you-thought-he-was villain, produced the intended effect on the audience. They screamed as one, the auditorium vibrating as 200 people simultaneously jumped in their seats. As I had anticipated, Megan leapt higher than most, at the same time letting out a surprised and sustained yelp. Megan's was not the only scream inspired by this jump scare, but since she was sitting next to me, it sounded like the loudest. But, surprisingly, it was quickly replaced by a louder scream, which was coming from somewhere behind me. 
The action of the play continued as the heroine and the villain struggled on stage, but for some unknown reason, the scream behind me continued. In fact, it sounded like it was getting louder and louder. People began to turn and peer in the dark toward the painful sound. It persisted, unabated, until finally the action on the stage came to a stop and the actors, along with most of the audience, turned toward the back of the theater. After much rumbling and calls for lights, lights, turn on the lights, the house lights finally popped on and then we were all able to see what all the screaming was about. A woman in the back row was standing, her hands covering her mouth, although this action was doing precious little to muffle her screams. Her shrieks were soon combined with a chorus from nearby theater-goers as we all saw what had frightened her so badly. The man seated next to her was slumped forward. He was clearly dead, and the cause was in plain view. A large knife had been plunged cleanly into the center of his back. 2. Oddly enough, I've become something of an old hand at homicide investigations, so nothing which followed really surprised me. Multiple simultaneous 911 calls by various audience members summoned uniformed officers almost immediately. The police locked down the location and were joined a few minutes later by two homicide detectives. The crime scene was cordoned off, and we were directed out of the auditorium, the large crowd filling up both the front lobby and the much larger back lobby. It was fortunate the theater's executive director was on hand, since she also happened to be playing the lead in the play. She conferred with the homicide detectives while still dressed in her show costume and makeup. It quickly became apparent that she was completely in charge of this particular situation and also not, in fact, blind. It's a ticketed event, she was explaining to the detectives when I got close enough to hear. We have the phone numbers, email addresses, and credit card information for all ticket buyers, and we know where each party was seated so we can get you all that data. Plus, the front and back doors are locked during performances, so while it's possible that someone might have left after the um, crime, it's unlikely anyone other than audience members were in the building when it happened. And the cast and crew, of course, added an older woman who appeared to work at the theater. I think I had seen her in the box office when Megan and I had made our whirlwind rush through the lobby just before the show started. The older woman turned to the lead detective and poked him in the arm. I got the sense they had crossed paths before. I've pulled the CCTV footage from the back and front door, she continued. Those cameras are motion sensitive. I did a quick check. Nothing was recorded after the smokers came back into the building at the end of intermission. We'll need copies of that, the detective said. Ready whenever you need it, the old woman replied quickly. She headed back toward the box office as the detective turned to one of the uniformed officers. There's no point keeping all these people here, he said. Start letting people go. Just make sure you get IDs on everyone before they leave. The cop nodded and immediately started to work, herding people toward the front door. In short order, Megan and I were in line to leave, and several minutes later, we were out on the street. 3. You told me the play had a surprising ending, 
but I think you undersold it, Megan said as we stopped on the sidewalk in front of the theater. You'll have to tell me the real ending at some point. I noticed a bar restaurant across the street called Jimmy's. It's still early, I said. Let's grab a drink and a snack, and I'll enthrall you with the actual but somewhat less compelling ending to wait until dark. Other theatergoers had clearly had the same idea because the hostess said it would be several minutes before a table might open up. She offered bar seating in the interim, which was fine with us. All we were looking for were two seats together. We found those two stools at the end of the bar and at the same time spotted a recognizable face. Alex, my new magic student, was just grabbing a pitcher of beer from the bartender. Quite a show, huh? he said with a weary shake of his head once we were within speaking range. That will be tough to top next weekend. I agreed and introduced Megan. You were really scary, she said after a quick handshake, but you seem nice up close. That's what it says at the top of my resume, Alex said. Scary at a distance, nice up close. He was holding the pitcher of beer with one hand while grasping for a bowl of pretzels on the bar. I reached out and grabbed the salty snack for him. You want to join us in the back? We have a couple of extra seats, he said, indicating with a quick nod where in the back was located. I looked at Megan. Although there were two perfectly acceptable stools at the bar, the area was dense with televised sporting events and highly vocal fans. She gave me her best, yes please, expression. Lead the way, I said to Alex as I grabbed a second bowl of pretzels for sustenance during the short journey. The faces at the cozy table looked oddly familiar, if slightly out of context. Having spent the evening watching them on stage, as well as at the preview earlier in the week, it was strange seeing the cast seated at a corner table, wearing different clothes and attitudes. Alex made some quick introductions, and I did my best to capture and hold on to the names before his words disappeared into the ether. From years of pulling people on stage for my act, I've developed the short-term skill of remembering names for the duration of a routine. However, hanging on to those names beyond that short time span still often eludes me. Alex poured himself a beer from the pitcher before handing it around the table. We were one chair short, so I gestured Megan toward the remaining seat and then found another chair at a nearby table. Are we expecting others? I asked Alex as I pulled the chair over and settled in. I looked around the room for other available chairs and also, more importantly, in hopes of spotting a waitress. He shook his head. Leah said she'd come over after the police leave, but I doubt that will be any time soon. We were supposed to be at an opening night party right now, but clearly that's not happening. This comment produced sounds of agreement from the other actors. Yep, this was certainly an opening night for the record books. This came from the young man across the table from me, who I recognized as the good guy who turns out to be the bad guy in the play. He had introduced himself as Lloyd Williams, and I sensed immediately he was probably the nemesis Alex had talked about earlier. They were both about the same age and physical type, and I could imagine them going head-to-head at auditions. Next to him was the actress who played the teenage neighbor in the play. She said her name was Gloria something. Her last name disappeared into the general hubbub of the bar. The first thing I noticed was she clearly wasn't actually a teenager. While she gave that impression on stage, 
Up close, even in dim bar lighting, it was evident she was pushing 30, and maybe even from the other side. However, she was small and slight and had pulled off the roll with aplomb. She handed the almost empty pitcher to the actor next to her, who played one of the other heavies in the play. He introduced himself just as Omar, so I was spared trying to remember yet another surname. Omar was heavy-set and balding, and I wondered for a moment if the director had cast him due to his slight resemblance to Jack Weston, the actor who had played the same part in the movie version of Wait Until Dark. Like Weston, Omar possessed a slick charm which worked well for him on stage. He had been one of the best actors up there, and I was sorry his character had been one of the first to die. Omar drained the pitcher into his glass and, for some reason, handed the now-empty container across the table to the actor who had played the blind woman's husband. I struggled for a moment to pull the name I had heard twenty seconds before. After several moments of nothingness, it finally came to me. Tom Drake. He looked at the empty pitcher for a long moment and then slowly stood up. I guess the next round is on the newbie, he said with a grim chuckle as he began to head toward the bar. That's right, Gloria said with a laugh. And if you need any help, the bar is stage left, upstage from where you are now. She laughed heartily at the jab, and the other actors joined in, but to a lesser degree. Tom gave this remark a sad smile as he headed toward the bar. I turned to Megan. Looks like if we want anything, we have to order it from the bar, I said. You hungry? Megan shook her head. No, I'll just take a Coke and some nachos, she said, and then quickly added, oh, and maybe some onion rings with ranch dressing. I stood up to follow Tom Drake to the bar, but was stopped by Gloria's piercing voice behind me. She certainly knew how to project. Hey, grab me a vodka tonic while you're up, would ya? I nodded to indicate my willingness for the task, but she had already turned away and was deep in conversation with Omar. I wove my way through the crowd and moments later joined Tom at the bar. He had already summoned the bartender's attention and his pitcher was in the midst of being filled. He turned to me and we nodded. A newbie, huh? I said, searching for some common ground on which to establish what would likely be a brief conversation. Yeah, this is my first play, he said. Although he had seemed quite confident on stage as the blind woman's husband, he now seemed nervous and self-aware. I was familiar with this incongruous duality. Many of the brashest magicians I knew were wallflowers offstage. Well, you look like a pro to me, I said. Thanks, I'm still trying to find my feet, he said quickly. He glanced over his shoulder at the waiting table. I guess I just need to get a few more shows under my belt. A life in the theater, I said, sounding way too jovial. Before Tom could respond, the bartender pushed the now full pitcher toward him. Tom deposited some cash on the bar and disappeared into the crowd. At the same time, I tried to recapture the bartender's attention. After three attempts, I was able to place my drink order. Can I order food here as well? I asked. Sure. Looks like your waitress has her hands full. What can I get you? I put in the order for the nachos and onion rings with a side of ranch dressing. I was about to head back to the table with our two Cokes when I remembered Gloria's last-minute request for a vodka tonic. Moments later, I was navigating my way through the crowd, balancing the three slippery drinks. 
I placed Megan's in front of her, then slid the vodka tonic across the table toward Gloria. It was then I noticed she was conversing quietly but heatedly with a guy who had approached the table. He looked down and saw the new drink in front of her. Another drink? I thought we were going to make it an early evening, he said, no longer speaking softly. It is still early, Gloria snapped. Why don't you go back and watch more of your sports ball stuff? The game's over and I'm tired, he growled. He looked to be a little older than her, well-dressed, with just the beginnings of gray around the temples. Let's go. He turned to go, got a few steps, and looked back. Gloria was not following him. He gave her a stern look, and she reluctantly stood and approached him. This was followed by a harsh but whispered conversation between the two. After several moments of discussion, Gloria returned to the table. I can have this last drink, she said, all the energy gone from her voice. And then Hubby says, it's pumpkin time for me. With that, Gloria picked up the drink and turned her attention back to a conversation with Omar. Her husband leaned against a wall and turned his attention to one of the bar's many television screens while still making occasional cold glances in our direction. Thanks for the coke, Megan said quietly. I felt bad leaving her at the table full of strangers. No problem. Food is on the way. So did I miss anything? She shook her head. You know how magicians basically always have the same three conversations? Why aren't I working? Why is he working? And why isn't there any work? I offered. Megan nodded. Turns out actors do the same thing. How lucky for you that you get to hear variations on these themes wherever you go. She gave me a quick smile, and then we turned to listen to the actors as they revisited the evening's performance and their theories about its sudden interruption. Moments later, our food arrived. Megan and I graciously shared the appetizers with the table, consequently getting far less than we might have liked. I noticed Gloria was really making her drink last, despite occasional annoyed glares from her husband. I was considering another trip to the bar for a repeat of the nachos when I glanced over and saw Williams had produced a deck of cards. Since Alex is in the midst of taking magic lessons from Eli here, but refuses to demonstrate anything except that silly coins across the knuckles, Williams said, his volume turned up to performance mode, I thought I'd show you folks a real card trick. It's done with just 21 cards. Megan looked over to see how well I was holding back my true feelings, and judging by her reaction, I must have been producing a relatively decent poker face. It's always been a mystery to me as to why people insist on performing card tricks in front of magicians. Maybe I'm a snob, but if you were at a dinner party with a dermatologist, would you point out moles on your fellow guests and attempt to out-diagnose the good doctor? Insist on showing Billy Joel, your superior version of Piano Man, challenging Marcel Marceau to a game of charades. And why was it always the 21-card trick? I glanced at Alex, and he returned my look with a pained expression of his own. While I'm sure he was carrying the pieces he needed to perform Matrix, it only requires a few coins and four cards, we both knew he wasn't ready to try it out on an actual audience. I silently applauded his restraint. 
It was a lesson I had learned from my first days in magic. My Uncle Harry would often work on a new routine for upwards of a year before he let anyone, even me, see it in action. Can I see what you're working on? I might ask Harry in passing. Oh, heavens no, Eli, my uncle would say with a chuckle. It's not anywhere near ready for public consumption. Well, I wasn't being that strict with my student. As a performer, Alex recognized he still needed more rehearsal and practice before he would be ready to successfully perform his new routine to the world at large. Twenty-one cards are all we need, Williams continued, after he'd called that number from the full deck. And then he was off and running, or more to the point, off and counting. After Gloria secretly looked at one of the twenty-one options presented to her, Williams then started dealing out the cards, face up, into three stacks. The object was for Gloria to identify which stack held her chosen card without revealing its actual identity. Williams then reassembled the cards and started the dealing process all over again. Deja vu, but not in a fun way. There are performers who can make this trick work. I was thinking notably of Bill Malone, whose version is a delight. But Lloyd Williams was no Bill Malone. He dealt the cards way too slowly, making three unnecessarily neat piles and dragging the process out to twice its required length. Then, disaster struck, and Williams was completely unaware. It happened when he looked up while dealing and said, Hey, Alex, I can show you how this is done later. Not to worry. <laughs> Anyone can do it. It's self-working, he said with a wink and a sneer and returned his attention to the three stacks in front of him, unaware he had miscounted the second stack. I wondered if I should alert him to this misstep, but realized, as Uncle Harry liked to say, this wasn't my circus and these weren't my monkeys. Plus, I hadn't cared for the passive-aggressive tone in his crack to Alex about the trick being self-working. And so, like the others, I watched as Williams went through the dealing process one last time and then prepared to announce which card was the one Gloria had chosen. But unlike the others, I already knew he would be wrong. Plus, I also knew the true location of the desired card. Trust me on this. Few things in this world fizzle out more anticlimactically than a long and botched card trick. When Williams revealed the card, and Gloria denied it was hers, what little energy remaining at the table evaporated in a quick puff of sad, disappointed smoke. Of course, since I knew where the correct card was, I could have easily saved Williams. I could have turned the trick into a two-hander and with some clever patter revealed the correct card to much enthusiasm and applause. Taking it a step further, with very little effort, I could have produced the anticipated card from my own pocket. I had a deck of cards on me, and without revealing how, I knew exactly where the King of Spades was located within it. I could have saved the trick and Williams and brought the routine to a rousing conclusion. But I did none of that. Instead, I let Williams simmer in his wrongness, annoyed that he'd attempted and botched a simple trick, and more annoyed that he had unnecessarily belittled my student in the process. 
Attention on William's moment of shame was suddenly diverted by the breathless appearance of the show's lead actress, Leah. She had changed out of her costume and seemed winded by the short trek from the theater to the bar. All eyes turned away from the sad display of cards in front of Williams to this new arrival. Are you done with the police? Alex asked. I glanced around for an additional chair, although I realized I could simply offer her my own. I was getting the sense from Megan that she'd like to head out sooner rather than later. Gloria's husband had stepped up to the table, and it looked like, if he had his way, his wife's chair would also be available in a matter of moments. The police are still there, but Betsy said she'd lock up after them, Leah said. But wait until you hear this. You know what the murder weapon was? If people hadn't been interested in Leah's arrival before, they were riveted now. Alex shook his head. It was the knife for the opening night cake, Leah said. It had been on display all evening in the back lobby right next to the cake. Talk about a crime of opportunity, Alex said with a low whistle. Anyone could have grabbed it during intermission. But that's not the weirdest thing, Leah continued. I overheard a couple of the cops and found out who got stabbed. She gave her impending pronouncement a dramatic pause before uttering the victim's name. It was Jeremy McCormick. The name meant nothing to me, but it was clearly familiar to the actors seated around the table. The announcement produced a hubbub of chatter. Gloria yelped. Omar sat back in his chair like he'd been punched in the chest. Tom Drake, who had been pale before, started to look a bit gray. But I couldn't help but notice that amidst the commotion, Alex and Lloyd Williams merely exchanged an apprehensive look and then immediately turned away from each other. Four. You know that expression, the enemy of my enemy is my friend? I nodded. I'm familiar with it. Well, it's not always correct, Alex continued. Sometimes the enemy of my enemy is also my enemy. And that's a pretty apt description of my relationship with Jeremy McCormick. And Lloyd Williams felt the same way as well. We were seated in the back room at Chicago Magic, once again working on Matrix. Alex was really coming along on the routine. So today's session consisted mostly of honing and sanding off a few of the rougher edges. So you're saying both you and Williams? had a contentious relationship with the murder victim? We didn't like each other and weren't shy about it, Alex said. Jeremy was a creep and a liar and a backstabber. We exchanged a quick look. Backstabber? I repeated. Maybe not the best choice of words, Alex agreed. Maybe not, but from the police point of view, I would have to think your shared dislike of the victim was hardly enough motivation to murder him. Exactly. Plus, don't forget... We were both on stage at the time, dead on stage, for that matter. Well, Williams was dead, I corrected. You weren't as dead as the audience thought you were. True enough, but I was on stage. Given that, do you think the police really suspect you? Or Williams, for that matter? Alex shook his head. Not seriously. They had me come down and talk to them for about 30 minutes but I got the sense they were just going through the motions. Mostly, they asked me about other people who had relationships with Jeremy. I told them he's been in the theater scene for years. I bet even Gloria had a short fling with him at one point. Before she was married? 
Alex shrugged. It's hard to tell with Gloria. She's one of those actors who always stirs up a relationship in every show she does. You can count on it like clockwork. Plus, I think her view on marriage vows is that they're merely suggestions and not hard and fast rules. Alex set down the cards he'd been handling and began to stretch his fingers, trying to loosen them up. But that doesn't really matter. Gloria was backstage waiting to come on. I could see her and Tom Drake standing in the wings. But her husband was also there, right? At that performance? Alex nodded. Yep. He was on the other side of the aisle from where the murder took place. Well, if Gloria had a thing with Jeremy at some point, maybe her husband stabbed him. Jealousy is a pretty good motive. The knife was there in the lobby, and he was just across the aisle from the guy. Not likely, Alex said. First, if Gloria's husband is going to start stabbing guys she slept with, he's going to need to purchase a 24-piece cutlery set, maybe a couple of them. But more importantly, his seat wasn't on the aisle. He was like four seats in. So how could he crawl out of his spot without being noticed? I remembered how tight the squeeze had been when Megan and I tried to get to our seats before the show started, banging the knees of several people who were already nestled in our row. What about Omar? I suggested. Alex considered this idea. The police asked me the same thing. I'm not sure if Omar had any relationship with Jeremy, but he was all alone downstairs in the green room when it happened. So he had opportunity, I said, and the means. Since everyone knew the knife was out there just waiting to cut the opening night cake, Alex added. I just don't see a motive for Omar. We sat quietly for several seconds, and then I decided it was time to turn our attention to the lesson. First up, I had Alex go through the whole routine, top to bottom, to see the moments which needed work. Although he was doing a stellar job for a newbie, I noted several places where he'd benefit from more precise direction. The problem with that one moment, I said after we'd finessed a couple of the earlier issues, is that you're working very hard to make it look like you're doing nothing at that moment. I know, he agreed. It looks odd, but I can't put my finger on why. Well, it looks and feels odd because you should be doing something right there, I explained. That's because you've done something right there at every other point in the trick. There is, by design, a lot of repetition in Matrix. So by not doing the same thing you've done all along, you're drawing attention to it. I picked up the full deck of cards to demonstrate. For example, if throughout a trick I'm dealing like this, and then, out of nowhere, I deal one card in a slightly different way, it will stand out in the audience's minds, I said. You've unknowingly created a pattern, and then you've broken it. The audience may not know what you did, but they recognize that something is different. We spent several minutes working on options for that moment to make it look as natural as possible. It's harder than it looks, Alex said, his frustration clearly evident in his voice. That's true of many of the best moments in magic, I replied. Jugglers want the audience to see how hard they're working, while we magicians do just the opposite. If they can see the effort, it literally takes the magic out of the moment. Maybe I should stick to self-working tricks, Alex mused. He looked over at me. What is a self-working trick anyway? It's a unicorn, 
came a voice from the other side of the curtain which separated the back of the store from the shop itself. It was Uncle Harry, who had clearly been listening in on our lesson. He pushed his way through the drape. No trick is truly self-working. That's just advertising hype, Harry continued, as he ambled over to our work table. It had been a quiet morning in the shop. The last time the bell over the front door rang had been when Alex arrived for his lesson. Every trick requires one thing, regardless of how simple it might be, he went on. It requires a performance. Although I don't think he noticed, I mouthed the last word as Harry said it. This was a sentiment I'd heard from my uncle my entire life. So, like the 21 card trick, Alex began, but Harry cut him off. It has to be performed, Harry snapped. Every trick, whether it requires fancy slights or the not-so-impressive art of counting, requires a performance on the part of the magician. That's why he or she is called a performer. Sure, Alex said, but that trick was 90% counting, which is intrinsically boring. Is it? Harry said with a hint of challenge in his voice. He had already pulled the small packet of cards out of his vest pocket. He began to count the cards. Let's see here. I have one, two, three, four, five, six cards in this packet. I place one, two, three of the cards on the table, leaving me with how many cards? Three, Alex said quickly. Let's just see, Harry continued as he counted through the packet again. I have one, two, three, four, five, six cards in this packet. I place one, two, three of the cards on the table. How many cards do I have now? Three, Alex offered with no confidence. Let's just see, Harry said as he counted up the cards in his hand. I have one, two, three, four, five, six cards in this packet. I place one, two, three cards on the table. Harry continued through the short routine, frying Alex's brain while dramatically demonstrating his point. He reached the end of the trick, his version of a popular illusion called six-card repeat. Counting doesn't have to be boring, he said, and if it is, I blame the magician and not the trick. But what if you can't even get the counting right, I offered, remembering William's rookie mistake at the bar. Well, then you probably shouldn't be doing the trick in the first place, Harry replied sharply as he scooped up a pile of cards and then headed back to the shop. Alex waited a few seconds after Harry had disappeared and then turned to me. How did he do that? That's a lesson for another day, I said. I gestured to the cards and coins in front of us. Let's stay focused. Speaking of another day, Alex said, I have a favor to ask. Shoot. It's really more for Leah in the theater, he continued. The big annual fundraising gala is coming up, and we're short one MC. The guy who was doing it, pro bono, has flaked out on her. Apparently, he got a paying gig. Not very professional on his part, I said. And you'd like me to step in and save the day? Something like that, Alex agreed. Let me check my calendar, but I'm on board in principle. I pulled my phone out to check my availability for that date. Who bailed on you, if you can say? I'm not sure if this is good news or bad news, he began. Don't tell me, I said as I held up my hand. Simon Hartwell. Exactly, Alex said with a wince. 
What a putz, I muttered. Tell Leah I'm in. Now, let's get back to work. Five. Thanks for doing this for free and on such short notice, Leah said quickly as she ushered me into the theater's lobby. No problem, I said. I have a surprising history of stepping into Simon Hartwell's shoes after he's found a pair which he finds more attractive. I wasn't particularly pleased with the metaphor, but I seem to have gotten my point across. Leah was nodding along. I know what you mean. I've had to do it twice here at the theater, stepping into major roles at the last minute both times, and I'm hoping not to make a habit of it. Well, you were terrific and wait until dark, I said. Has the media attention around the murder had an impact on the show? As terrible as it sounds, we saw a big bump in sales right away, she said. We'd like to extend the run, but we have another show in rehearsal, and if we extend one show, it will throw off the calendar for the rest of the year. Such is the downside of success at the community theater level. We had reached the double doors which led into the auditorium. The first set were open, while the inner set of doors were closed. I could hear voices coming from within. I don't know if Alex fully explained the structure of our gala show, Leah said, as we stopped by the outer doors. It's a preview of our next season, so the audience gets to see snippets of each of the nine plays. Each piece runs about five minutes. It can make for a sort of disjointed evening, I'm told, but that's what they've done historically. And I'm the glue that holds it all together? With any luck, yes. Leah said with a grin. It was my idea to have a professional host. When we booked Simon Hartwell, we came up with the theme, The Magic of Theater. Hokey, I know, but that's what happens when committees make decisions. Not a problem. You should hear some of the corporate themes I've had to work with, I said. Together we're better. In it to win it. Pride and performance, I rattled off quickly. My favorite was a collection of bright stars does not a galaxy make. It's been years, and I'm still trying to figure that one out. Leah laughed. Anyway, your job is to simply welcome the audience, maybe do some tricks between acts and introduce each play's segment. Did you get the script I emailed over? I held up the stapled sheets I'd printed out that morning. It all seems pretty straightforward, I said. I've made some notes on some possible opening effects, some interstitial stuff that sort of ties into each play's segment, and then a nice finale. It sounds like you've done more work on this than I have, Leah said with a laugh. She listened at the door for a second. The sound of voices within had faded. Let me just see how far they are on the tech rehearsal, and then we'll get you in and walk through your segments. No problem, I said. Take your time. I'm in no hurry. With a nod of thanks, Leah headed into the theater. I stood by the closed doors for a few moments, and then began to wander around the lobby. I was drawn to a photo display on one wall, which upon inspection turned out to be headshots of the cast of Wait Until Dark. I was reminded immediately of my first headshot when I'd gotten into magic on what was, at best, a semi-professional level. The pose I had picked could have been from just about any cookie-cutter magician out there at the time. It was me, with bad hair, and a too-large tuxedo, grinning as I fanned a deck of cards toward the camera. The memory made me wince. I wondered, not for the first time, if the headshot 
had lost me more work than it got me. I scanned the photos. Alex grinned brightly at the camera, while Lloyd Williams had struck a more serious tone. Gloria didn't look like a teenager in her photo, just like in real life. I was still surprised at how she had pulled off that transformation on stage. Tom Drake looked a little wide-eyed, like the photographer had caught him by surprise. Omar stared back at me without expression, and then there was Leah's headshot, which I noticed immediately was slightly different from the others. The lighting was not the same, and the background, although similar, didn't match. They pulled her photo from another show, said a voice behind me. I turned to see it was Omar, looking at me with the same blank expression he'd had in his photo. Because she joined us late in the process. She wasn't there when our show headshots were taken. I nodded a greeting and turned back to the display. A motley crew, Omar continued, moving so that he was now standing alongside me. Better than some, worse than others. You've done a lot of shows here, I asked, not sure if I was just making conversation or if I was digging for something deeper. Omar shrugged. A few. When they need a fat guy, or a bald guy, or a fat bald guy. With a little warning, I could even give you a fat bald guy with a beard. He turned and grinned at me. Character actors never die, I suggested. Damn straight. I decided I was, in fact, digging. So I continued. Alex said the police questioned him about the murder. And that they talked to you as well? Yes, that was a new one for me, Omar said with a slow shake of his head. I mean, they were nice enough about it, and I can see their point. After Gloria and Tom left the green room to go upstairs for their final scene, I was all alone. So it makes sense to think I might have gone up to the lobby, grabbed the knife, and done the deed while everyone else was on stage. But the fact is, there's just no motive. I mean... I knew Jeremy, but just barely. Had you ever been in a show with him? Years ago, and we didn't even have scenes together. Someone mentioned that maybe he'd been involved with Gloria at some point. This had started out as a statement, but evolved into a question by the time I got to the end of the sentence. Who knows? There's no shortage of those guys. Although, he added as he turned to me, Gloria might be outgrowing that. I've been in plenty of shows with her, and this is the first time, to my memory, she hasn't had a serious fling with another cast member. You used to be able to set your watch to her. That's interesting, I said. I decided to press further. Even you? Omar laughed. Hardly. Gloria doesn't ride my bus. For a while, I thought she might have set her sights on the new guy, Tom, but that didn't seem to go anywhere. Alex also said that both he and Lloyd Williams had a contentious relationship with Jeremy McCormick over the years. Omar laughed. <laughs> that was no secret. But they were both on stage at the time, so how did they make that happen? How indeed. Here's my theory, and I wasn't shy about telling it to the police. I think someone snuck in during intermission, making their way into the building with the smokers, then they hid in the men's room, waiting for that scene when the theater goes entirely dark. They grabbed the knife, stabbed Jeremy, and hightailed it back to the men's room until the lobby filled up. That's a thought, I said. What did the police think? The detective I talked to made some notes, but I don't think he was buying it. Well, if your theory is correct, 
the killer needed to have some pretty specific knowledge about the play and the theater, I offered, as I walked toward the doors to the auditorium. I mean, they had to know it would be pitch black in there long enough to get in, stab Jeremy, and get out. They needed to know that the two sets of doors would allow them to get in without light spilling in from the lobby. And to me, the biggest question, they had to know where Jeremy was sitting and be able to find him in the dark. Yeah, I was wondering about that too. If Alex or Williams were involved, which I don't think they were, they might have been able to spot him and see where he was sitting during Act One. But again, they were on stage when he was killed, along with Leah. Gloria and Tom were off stage, waiting to go on. I was in the green room. His voice trailed off. Perhaps it was suicide, he finally said with a laugh. Or maybe Jeremy hired a hitman to knock him off. That's a popular trope in movies, isn't it? The guy who hires someone to kill him? Sure thing, I agreed. But I don't think he comes up that often in real life. Too bad. That would have been a clean solution, Omar said. So are you here for the tech rehearsal? He nodded toward the closed double doors. I nodded. Yep, I'm your new MC. You're in the show? Just barely, he said. Jeremy was supposed to perform in one of the scenes. Now that he's not available, I was asked to step in. A good part, I asked, trying to sound as casual as possible. But Omar was on to me. An okay part, I guess, he said, grinning, but not worth killing for. Before I could press this point further, Leah popped her head through the closed double doors. Eli, we're ready for you, she said. I nodded a goodbye toward Omar and followed her into the auditorium. I turned just as the doors started to swing shut and saw that he was still watching us. He continued to stare until the closing doors silently obscured him from view. 6. I'm sorry, I said, turning toward Leah. What did you say? I hadn't heard her because once we stepped into the auditorium, my attention had immediately turned to the seat in the back row where Jeremy McCormick had been sitting when he'd been stabbed. I think I expected to see the area cordoned off with yellow police tape. However, if that had been the case earlier in the week, it was no longer an official crime scene. Instead, as I turned to my left as we made our way down the center aisle, I simply saw a line of matching seats that made up the theater's last row. It was identical to the row on my right. No sign of recent homicidal activity. I was saying, Leah repeated, that will just go through your cues in order. No need for you to be here for the cue to cue for all nine of the scenes. That's great, I said as we neared the stage. I glanced up to see the set for Wait Until Dark, looking slightly less dynamic under the bright work lights. Leah directed me toward a temporary stair unit, which had been added to the far end of the stage. There isn't money in the budget to take down the current set for the gala, she explained as I followed her up the steps. So it's traditionally performed on the set of whatever show is running. They tell me the year they did it during the run of Murat Saad made for a particularly grim event, although for some reason it brought in a ton of money. I followed her to center stage and looked out into the house. 
even from this distance, with more lights on me than were on in the auditorium, I had no trouble picking out Jeremy McCormick's seat. Every seat in the house was clearly visible. Let me give you a quick geography lesson, Leah began. You'll make your entrance from over there in the right wing. And how do I get there in the first place? I asked. Good question. There are stairs leading up to that side of the stage from the basement and a corridor that runs under us to the green room, she explained, tracing the journey with her finger from my entrance wing across the stage toward the left wing. Good to know, I said. I had to do a show once on a platform that looked like a real stage, but it actually wasn't. The client wanted me to enter from the right side, and the only way to pull it off was to preset me there before doors. And then I had to sit there, waiting 90 minutes until my introduction. So from that night on, I always check ahead of time for a way on and a way off. Not a problem here, thankfully, Leah said with a laugh. She picked up a portable headset from the coffee table in front of the couch and pulled it on, flipping a switch on a small black box as she attached it to her belt. Kanisha, we're ready for the opening cue she said into the headset. She nodded as she listened for a moment, then turned to me. They're still writing a couple of light cues up in the booth, she said with a wave toward the back of the house. On the back wall, about a half story up, I could see a set of small windows. A silhouetted figure waved back. We stood awkwardly on the stage, waiting for the lighting cue to get written. I glanced around at the set, and a question occurred to me. During the show, I said as I moved toward the couch, when Lloyd Williams' character is killed, he falls right about here. Am I right? I pointed to a spot on the stage directly behind the couch. I think that's about right, Leah agreed. Why do you ask? I looked over at her. I should warn you, I have, on occasion, become entwined in police investigations, so I've gotten in the habit of trying to work things out in my head. Me too, Leah said as she moved toward me. What are you thinking? I'm just wondering, when the set went dark during the show, if it would be possible for Williams to crawl off stage over to the right wing, where I'll be entering from, and then head downstairs, make his way through the corridor under the stage, run up the steps to the lobby, grab the knife, and kill Jeremy McCormick? and then get back here on stage before the lights came back on? I've had that same thought, Leah said. He certainly might have had enough time. I don't know the exact running time of that scene. From my perspective, it lasts forever. But he'd have to pass right through the green room, and I'm guessing Omar would have seen him. Plus, he'd also have to come up the stairs on the other side to get to the double blackout doors that go to the lobby. So it's pretty likely Gloria and Tom would have spotted him as well. Yeah, Alex said he could see both of them in the wings, I added. I sat down on the couch and looked up at her. So you've been puzzling on this mystery as well? Leah sat down next to me, adjusting the black box on her belt as she did. I've had my own experiences with police investigations since I got here. After a couple of those, it becomes hard not to turn yourself into a mini Sherlock Holmes. So you're new to the theater? Well, I'm new to this theater, she said. 
I acted in New York for a while, and then, when this job came up, I decided it was time for a change. Were you familiar with the cast before you joined the show? Leah shook her head. I'd done a couple of shows with Alex since I arrived, she said, and I'd seen Omar in a show, and Gloria too, now that I think of it, but Lloyd Williams was new to me, and Tom Drake, I guess, is entirely new to the theater. I nodded, and we sat in silence for several moments. Alex said both he and Williams had a bad history with the victim, Jeremy McCormick, I said, once again returning to the topic of the recent murder. And Omar confirmed Gloria once had a fling with McCormick, but he wasn't sure how long ago it was or how it ended. Apparently, Gloria has a history of flings with cast members. You're not the first to mention it, Leah said. I know her type. Seems like there's always one in every show. Omar said she appears to have broken that habit, though, I added, at least on this show. I was about to continue on that thread when Leah suddenly held up one finger. She pressed the other hand against her earpiece. After a moment of listening, she nodded and turned to me. Kanisha's ready to run the opening, she said as she stood. Why don't you take your place off stage? I nodded and got up, heading toward the right wing. I turned back as Leah stepped off stage in the other direction. She spoke into her headset. Cue the opening. From where I stood, I could see Leah clearly on the other side of the stage, standing in the wings. I realized that Alex had been correct. Gloria and Tom would have been easily visible while he was on stage, even if he was busy trying to murder Leah or actually her character at the time. Suddenly, a loud drum roll blasted out of the speakers as moving lights began to ballyhoo the stage. A moment later, a pre-recorded announcer's voice echoed through the empty theater. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 65th annual Como Lake Players Preview Gala. Lively music replaced the drum roll, but the lights kept sweeping the stage. Please welcome tonight's host, magician extraordinaire, Simon Hartwell. Leah yelled to me from her position across the stage. Don't worry, we'll be re-recording that. I nodded as I stepped out onto the stage. The ballyhoo receded and the lights came up full. Good evening, I said to the dark and empty auditorium. I glanced at the script in my hands and then turned to Leah. A quick technical question? That's why we call it a technical rehearsal, she said, as she rejoined me center stage. If those steps are going to be there on show night, then I can bring people on stage for some tricks, I said as I gestured toward the temporary stair unit. If not, then I can rejigger the act so that no one needs to come on stage. Let me check. She quickly relayed my question into her headset. She nodded as she listened and then turned to me. Kenesha said we'll have a sturdier stair unit in place, but it will be stage left. That is, on our left, as we face the audience, she continued. Oh, wait. Sorry, you probably knew that already, didn't you? I mean, you're a professional, she said, quickly turning apologetic. I nodded and smiled. Not to worry. Years of corporate shows with executives who never learned the difference between stage left and stage right have reinforced the vital need for that refresher course. I looked over where the steps would be during the show. I won't bring anyone up for this first segment, 
I'll just do something quick to establish my character. But when I do bring someone on stage, how tough is it to bring up the house lights a bit so they can see where they're going? Before Leah could reply, the house lights quickly popped on in response. Apparently, it's no problem at all, she said. Kanisha is very good. Something in her ear interrupted her, and she listened quietly for a moment. She wants a minute to write a quick house light cue to have as a go-to for during the show. No problem, I said as I flipped through my script pages. I was thinking about adding in a rope trick for my second segment, now that I knew for sure I could bring someone up from the audience. Leah headed back to her side of the stage to grab her clipboard. She listened at her headset for a moment, and then turned to me. We're going dark for a moment while she finesses this cue. Before I could respond, the lights snapped off, plunging us into darkness. One moment, I'd been able to see Leah standing in the wings, and then nothing at all in any direction. A thought began to form in my mind, and it came to the surface just as the lights returned. Can we do that again? I asked as I moved toward the refrigerator at the rear of the set. Do what? Go dark? If it's not a big problem, I said. I just want to try something out. Before Leah could even repeat the message, Kanisha had once again shut off all the lights. I reached out in the darkness and found the handle to the refrigerator door. I pulled it open and looked around the stage as the small amount of light spilled out. During the show, not the upcoming gala, but during Wait Until Dark, is this how dark the room gets during that final blackout scene? It sure is. Leah said, her voice coming out of the darkness. Interesting, I said slowly. After a moment, I realized we were all standing in the dark. Thanks, you can bring the lights back on. A moment later, the stage was once again flooded with light. I squinted as I glanced down at the floor where Williams had been lying the night Megan and I saw the show. I looked over to where the steps were now, stage right, and then looked over at where they'd be during the gala. I continued to scan the stage until I saw Leah staring back at me from the wings. What is it? she asked as she walked toward me. We met center stage. I think I just figured it out, I said slowly, afraid that uttering those simple words might make the idea vanish into the deep recesses of my brain. But the more I thought about it, the more it felt right. I thought about Williams counting and miscounting the cards that night at the bar and how Uncle Harry had railed against self-working tricks. I thought about teaching Alex to be consistent with all of his moves while performing Matrix in order to cover the slights and about how he'd unwittingly created a pattern and then, by breaking that pattern, drew attention to himself and I thought about the placement of the stair unit today and where it would be the night of the gala. And I suddenly knew how and why Jeremy McCormick had been killed and, more importantly, who had done it. I turned to Leah. How close are you with the St. Paul Police Homicide Division? Oddly enough, they're on my speed dial, she said. What have you got? Once I said it out loud and Leah added some thoughts of her own, we realized 
that calling the police was our best next step. The call took five minutes, and then we continued with the technical rehearsal. But to be honest, I could tell our hearts weren't really in it anymore. We still had murder on our minds. 7. Thanks for coming, everyone. This short welcome announcement was given in the flat, even voice of Detective Dietz as the invitees stood awkwardly near the stage. Although not a commanding figure, his years of experience somehow made him quickly the center of attention in a situation like this one. And being a homicide detective also didn't hurt. Some new information about the case has come to our attention, he continued. And rather than bring you all in one at a time, I thought it might be more efficient to do this as a group. This invite-only presentation had definitely been his idea. Once Leah and I recounted our theory to him over the phone, he'd come to the theater and asked us to physically walk through our scenario. At the conclusion of our demonstration, he'd sat quietly for several moments in the seat where Jeremy McCormick had died. His quiet demeanor reminded me of a civics teacher I'd had back in high school who always remained calm and cool regardless of the shenanigans taking place in his classroom. I think, given the lack of actual physical evidence, it would be more productive to bring the entire cast together for this, he finally said. The individual personalities and group dynamics might work to our advantage. And so, the cast had been given an early call time for their Thursday night performance of Wait Until Dark, arriving well before any of the ushers or other volunteer staff were on hand. The only non-cast members present were me, Detective Dietz, and Gloria's husband. He looked just as sullen as he had the night I'd met him at the bar. After a grunted introduction, I learned his name was Sean. This is Eli Marks, Detective Dietz continued, nodding his head in my direction. I've asked him to lead this short reenactment, which I think we all might find illuminating. He stepped aside and gestured that the floor was now mine. Thanks, Detective, I said. Leah and I have a theory about how and why Jeremy McCormick was murdered. To best explain our thinking, I'd like everyone to go to where you were when the crime occurred. I turned quickly to Omar, who had started to head toward the exit. Omar, we know you were downstairs in the green room. For the purposes of this demonstration, why don't you just sit on that stair unit by the stage? He nodded in agreement while the rest of the cast moved up onto the set. I'm not really sure why I'm here, Sean said. He and Gloria had come in together, but as soon as she headed toward her spot in the wings, he immediately looked awkward and unhappy. Although, to be fair, he hadn't looked all that excited before that. Sean, you are here as a representative member of the audience, I explained. Why don't you just take the seat you had that night, if you remember where it was? He nodded and crossed the aisle to his seat, grumbling something I couldn't quite hear. I turned to Detective Dietz. And why don't you take the hot seat where Jeremy McCormick was sitting that night? The detective moved to the back row and settled into the seat. We exchanged a look. I can't be entirely certain what it meant, but it felt like he was communicating, Hey, stupid, don't screw this up. 
I tried to offer a return look, which said, not to worry, I've got this. However, I wasn't at all confident I'd expressed that sentiment, so instead, I turned to the stage to see how the actors were doing getting into position. Lloyd Williams was standing by the couch. Although normally pretty cocky, the sight of the detective and the announcement of this reenactment seemed to have taken some of the wind out of his sails. Alex and Leah were standing in front of the couch. Alex had just bent down and gingerly tipped the coffee table over so it would be consistent with that moment in the play. Seeing that Alex was going for that level of verisimilitude, Williams reluctantly lay down on the stage, taking the position his character falls into after being murdered. I could see his feet sticking out from behind the couch. Gloria and Tom Drake had disappeared into the wings, although I could see Gloria peeking out from around the curtain. For the purposes of this demonstration, I said loudly so they could hear me from the back of the house, why don't Gloria and Tom step on stage just a bit so you can see what's going on? They both stepped forward without enthusiasm. Kenesha, can you hear me? I said as I turned toward the back wall of the theater. I could see just a trickle of light coming from the windows of the technical booth high up on the back wall. Loud and clear, came her muffled voice. Great. Let's go to lighting cue number one. She must have been poised and ready for this instruction, for a moment later, the lighting in the room changed dramatically. The stage lights went on full, while the house dimmed to what she had told me was half. That is, not as dark as it was during the show, but just light enough so we could see what was going on in the house. Okay, for our purposes, let's pretend this lighting represents how things look before the blackout. Then we'll switch to our modified blackout look, I requested. A second later, the white lights on stage went out, leaving only a spooky blue glow covering the stage. For our demonstration, this represents the blackout look, I said as I turned toward the auditorium's entrance doors. Detective Dietz gave me the slightest of nods from his seat, while on the other side of the aisle, Gloria's husband glared at me. The reflected blue light from the stage gave his already sunken eyes a menacing tinge. As I reached the doors, I turned and addressed the cast on stage. Once the blackout occurred, the clock was ticking for our killer. They had to leave their current position, make their way to the lobby, and grab the knife which lay next to the opening night cake. I dramatically pulled a butter knife from my jacket pocket. I picked it up earlier in the theater's small kitchenette. Then, as quietly as possible, the killer had to move through first the outer door to the auditorium, wait for that door to close completely, and then move through the inner door, ensuring that no light leaks would give them away. I stepped out of the auditorium for what I hoped was a dramatic moment, and then re-entered through the second door. I stood for a moment at the top of the center aisle. Time is running out, and I have to be quick, I continued. It's dark, but I know where my victim is sitting. On the left, four seats in. Feeling for the seats, I ease my way down the back wall until I count the fourth seat. 
I stabbed the victim repeatedly in the back at the very moment that everyone in the audience is jumping at Alex's back from the dead attack on Leah. The audience screams cover up any sounds the victim might make. Assured my work is complete, I leave the knife in his back. I feel my way to the entrance door, slip through it, waiting until it is completely closed, and then I move back into the lobby. Mission accomplished. I look down the long aisle toward the cast assembled on stage. They stared back at me for a long moment. That's nice and all, Omar finally said from his position on the stairs. But how is that new? I mean, isn't that what happened? It is what happened, I said. But I don't think that's what was supposed to happen. I moved back to my position directly in front of the closed doors. I think the direction our killer received was this. The victims on the left, the fourth seat. From my position in front of the doors, I turned slightly to my left and indicated Detective Dietz, who sat four seats in from the aisle. The problem, as it turns out, was that the person offering that plan meant stage left, I continued, which, from this new perspective facing the stage, is actually on my right. So, in reality, the killer should have turned right, counted four seats, and stabbed that person. I matched my actions to my words and found myself on the opposite side of the back row. The person sitting in the seat in front of me was Gloria's husband, Sean. It was simple, really, I continued. People get this mixed up all the time. The difference between audience left and stage left, especially people who are new to the theater. This last statement had its intended effect. Tom Drake pushed himself away from Gloria, pointing a shaking finger at her as he stumbled toward center stage. It was all her idea, he yelped. She planned it. She made me do it. What are you saying? Gloria screamed back. I had no idea you were planning such a thing. I love my husband. She turned toward Detective Dietz, who had crossed the aisle to stand next to me. Don't listen to anything he says. He's lying. I swear, he's lying. She set the whole thing up, Tom Drake continued. It looked like he was hyperventilating. She pointed her husband out from backstage. There he is, she said, on the lap, fourth seat. I got through the doors, and I did what she said, fourth seat on the left. You're an idiot, Gloria shot back and leapt toward him. Two uniformed cops appeared suddenly from the other wing and stepped between the couple, pulling them apart and quickly snapping handcuffs on the pair. Well, we can sort all that out downtown, Dietz said slowly. He sauntered down the aisle and looked up at Leah. I'm afraid you're going to be a couple actors short this weekend. That's okay, she said. It's kind of a badge of honor to close the show early when it's selling out. Plus, that will give us a head start on installing the set for the next show, which is already selling quite nicely. I know, he said. My wife has already bought tickets. I couldn't tell from his tone if this was a good thing or not. I watched as the two cops escorted Gloria and Tom up the center aisle. Her husband 
simply glared at her as she was marched past. The couple were still trading barbs after they disappeared through the double doors, their voices echoing out in the lobby. After several moments, all was quiet. How did you know she was having an affair with Tom? This came from Alex. He and Williams had stepped to the edge of the stage to watch the couple's exit. It's just like that move in Matrix we were talking about, I said. Gloria had established a pattern, always having a fling with a cast member, and then drew attention to herself when she broke that pattern. I imagine once she hatched her plan with Tom Drake, they went to great lengths to cover any hint that they were involved. If there was no evidence of involvement between them, I think she felt that would create a stronger alibi for them during the murder. She knew I could see them in the wings before the blackout, Alex said, and that I'd assume Tom was still there in the dark. If nothing else, I think this points out the dangers of show romances, Omar suddenly offered from his position on the stairs. Although I don't think the others noticed it, I'm sure I detected a quick look between Alex and Leah. I actually think they knew each other from outside the theater, Leah said quickly. Doing the show together was just part of her larger plan. Yes, yes, well, it'll all be sorted out in the wash, Dietz said to no one in particular. The best laid plans. It's like what your Uncle Harry said about self-working tricks, Alex said with a quick glance over at Williams. They're not self-working, if you can't even count properly. I don't think his fellow actor caught the subtle dig. Yes, like Harry said, a truly self-working trick is something of a unicorn in the magic world, I agreed. Anyway, Detective Dietz said, clearly not interested in the mechanics of magic tricks, I'm sure we'll need you two to come down at some point make an official statement. He nodded first at me and then at Leah. No problem, she said. Absolutely, I said. He looked at us for a long moment, turning from me to Leah and then back to me. You know, I made some calls about you, he said. He was barely suppressing a smile. Something seemed to be striking him funny, although it wasn't clear what it might be. I felt like it might be me. You seem to have something of a reputation with the homicide folks in Minneapolis, he continued. I suppose that's possible. I agreed. And this one, he said, turning back to Leah, this one is already developing a reputation of her own over here in St. Paul. Sadly, that is true, Leah said, not even bothering to suppress a grin. Detective Dietz gave us another long look as he headed toward the exit. Well, in future, I would suggest you two stick to your respective occupations in your corresponding cities. Leah shrugged. Never say never. I smiled at her. That's right. Never say never. That's a great story, John. Very nicely done, as are all of these. I really enjoy these. I really enjoy them. I enjoy, them. I enjoy recording them, but I really enjoy listening to them. Well, I always tell people, if you're going to experience a Neil Mark story, book or short story, do the audio version because Mr. Jim Cunningham yeah. makes them so much better. I was not fishing for a compliment, but I, I will accept it. And I, I'm grateful to you for all of this because without you, 
the titular head of all of this, none of it goes anywhere. Well, I'm glad you like the story. I'm the blind squirrel. Okay, so here is my question for you, John. Are you ever going to do another crossover between your series, the Como Lake Players Mysteries and the Eli Marks Mysteries? Oh, boy. Well, as Eli says in the story, never say never. But we're not quite done with the Como Lake Players on this podcast. But we are done with season three, right? Yes and no. This is where being a subscriber is a big help because if there were to be a bonus episode, I'm not saying there's going to be, but if there were going to be a bonus episode for season three, if you don't subscribe, you might miss it. Oh boy. That's uh, I like this whole angle now. It's a uh, subscribe. We've been begging you to subscribe and now you've got uh, finally uh, uh, a reason in case I'm not saying I'm, I, I don't know because I am, I am. I, I uh, all I know is this: you should subscribe because I finally and definitely am going to subscribe, so I don't miss any potential bonus episodes. And I absolutely am not going to want to miss season four. Right? We're doing a season four. Give us some hints as to what's coming. You know, down the season four pike. I can do better than hints. I can tell you that we'll be back in season four with 24 new episodes. We'll be listening to the third book in the series, The Miser's Dream. And uh, we have some pretty cool guests lined up. I'm not going to say any of their names now, but I we have recorded a few of them. And there's more coming that will make your eyes pop out a little tiny bit. So that's season four. Keep an eye out for that. Yeah, I can't wait. Uh, and you, you know what I do want to do is thank everybody for listening. Because uh, it, it it's fun to record these things, and um, I hope you're having as, half as much fun as I'm having listening to them uh, as we are recording them. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you. This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham. Produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at elimarksmysteries.com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S, mysteries.com. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.